It is indeed the Mike Smith Show, and I'm Raji Sohal, guest hosting for Mike today and the rest of the week. And I'm sure many of you are recovering from Boxing Day or maybe still in the throes of those Boxing Day sales. And speaking of sales and speaking of money, let's talk a little bit about that impending recession we keep hearing about. This weekend, Prime Minister Trudeau told Canadians to brace for the coming tough times, as he called it. But what we have is an engineered recession. It's a recession by design, one that we have set up to occur. For more, I'm joined by Dr. Eric Cam, Director of International Economics at Toronto Met University. Hi, Eric. Hi, how are you? Great. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, Eric, you heard Trudeau say next year is going to be a tough one. But in his full message, uh, because he went on for a while, he suggests that this is a necessary pill to swallow to get us on track. What does he mean by that in terms of our economy? And, and is it the case? Is it true? Uh, it's true. He's a little bit late to the party, but it's true. So what he means is that if he was going to be completely honest and transparent, he would go back about two and a half, three years ago, right before the pandemic started, when the prime minister decided that the population, to a great extent, didn't have to go to work to make a living and that we would, as a government, fund everybody and some of that money was necessary some of that money has been fraudulent but no matter how you slice it it was billions of dollars more than it had to be so then the prime minister should have come out and said anytime that you inject billions of dollars into an economy where approximately 80 percent of the money in circulation came as a result of the pandemic tie into that a supply chain problem you have a very simple economic formula you have too much money chasing too few goods and there you have great inflation so now you bring in the prime minister who says all right now we have great inflationary times and he's hedging his bet he's saying that eventually he thinks that this is going to hit the labor market and cause unemployment and a recession but he doesn't really know but what he wants to do is sort of cover his backside and say it's plausible even probable, but he kind of left out the reason why that happened. And I think that's a little bit disingenuous. It's interesting. I remember back when he was filling people's pockets with CERB. And as you say, too, I think that some people needed that money, but certainly not everyone that got it needed it. Um, At the time, I remember talking to mortgage brokers who were getting really concerned. They were saying, how can you inject billions of dollars into this measure right now? Well, what's going to be the plan afterwards? Because they knew that this was going to set us up for the current situation. Well, I think a lot of people knew that it was not just the exactly what would happen. It was the only thing that could happen. I mean, this is really, I mean, it's nice, but you know, when you're a, a tenured academic in the ivory tower, as they say, these things are fascinating to watch as a real life economic experiment. But the reality is, as an economist, I only care about what I call, quote unquote, real people, people that struggle to feed their children, people that struggle to put a roof over their children's head. And I think that playing Russian roulette with the average wage earner and the average family is really sad. But at the time, I guess the government had their beliefs that they were doing the right thing. I mean, I'm not a massive fan um, of the prime minister and anyone who's heard me on the radio. I'm not quiet about the fact that I think he's made some gross mistakes. But he came out about a year and a half ago and announced publicly, I don't care about monetary policy. Well, guess what? He didn't. 
He didn't care about monetary policy. He basically let it go to hell in a handbasket. And that's why we're here. So that's why we're here. And we're hearing that this upcoming uh, predicted recession is going to result in some job losses. Those job losses are going to happen for the people who are working class. It's going to happen to the folks who are the most financially vulnerable. But at the same time, to push back against what you just said, what about the fact that some of these people who did receive the CERB payments, if they hadn't, they literally would have been on the streets? And hence why when we started this conversation, I said some of it justified, some of it not. Nobody was looking to throw anybody out on the street. Um, I would consider myself right of center, but I don't want to see homeless people. The difference is I don't want to see homeless people in a recession. I don't want to see homeless people in a pandemic. So I don't want to see homeless people. And I think what the government did um, in being so ridiculous with their monetary policy is to unfortunately put people's lives and their ability to, to feed and clothe their children at stake. We, we had to give out, everybody gave out money. Industrialized countries gave out money because people were not at work and not working through no fault of their own. I buy that. It's when you look at the magnitude of the dollars that were given out. Sure. And when you look at, at the fraudulent side, you say to yourself, well, what else could happen? And again, not to be a broken record, not that my students even know what that term means, but... <laughs> <laughs> Who does this affect? You think this, like, I keep hearing doctors and professors on TV discussing how horrible this is going to be. Doctors and professors have nothing to complain about. We're not the people this is going to hit. And that's what makes me sad. Yeah. Just yesterday, I heard from a listener who told me they will lose their home, their very tiny, modest home, but that they were already living on a very, very tight retired budget. And uh, they're going to lose their home if this recession is, is bad, if it gets any worse. But let's talk about the Bank of Canada. So the Bank of Canada, uh, they they made this aggressively, it, it's, it, the pace of the rising interest rate is wild. It, they were really aggressive about it and in a relatively short span of time. But the interest rate is the only instrument, it's the only tool that the Bank of Canada has to try and affect change. Do you think that the federal government leans too much on the Bank of Canada, that the federal government should have done more than just lean on the Bank of Canada to change interest rates? Sure, but um, if I can jump in there, that assumes that the Bank of Canada and the government are two distinct and separate bodies. Yeah. And I'm here to pull the veil off that too, because that's not true. The Bank of Canada doesn't do much without consulting with the Prime, Prime Minister and the Finance Minister and the Budgetary Officer. So let's kind of pull the veil off this. The Bank of Canada is operating in a vacuum. In my personal opinion, which is, I guess, why you called, um, I, I would want the people of Vancouver to know what I think, which is the government made these mistakes. I think the government was the, was the one driving what happened during the pandemic, and now I think it's the government turning to Tiff Macklem and the Bank of Canada saying, OK, now please fix it and fix it quickly. And you've got the Bank of Canada going. We have this unprecedented crisis and you want us to fix this thing quickly. And we have one proverbial bullet in our gun. All we have is, is interest rates. That's all we have. That's what a Bank of Canada, any central bank, you can play with the money supply or you can play with interest rates. So they're playing with, with interest rates. So I think it's a little bit um, difficult to look at the Bank of Canada and go, well, you screwed up. OK, did they do their job? Not really. Are they ab abiding by what's on their Web page that says they're going to keep inflation at two percent? 
No. If that's how you're grading them, you'd fail them. But you have to remember. You have to remember the load of you-know-what. They've been handed by the federal government and been told, here, fix this and fix it quickly. Well, in terms of transparency, we're not going to see Prime Minister Trudeau take any steps back there and say, look, we're in the situation because of having initially injected those billions of dollars with all the, the CERB payments. So what's next? What's next is a government that you would like to think is awake and aware and willing to take disposable income and try to increase it for its population. But they don't seem to be willing to do that. I mean, I would argue right now, and I don't mean to offend any listeners, but that when the economy looks like it's heading for a recession, the last thing I would do is bring in new massive taxes like the carbon tax. I would scrap that in a heartbeat. And don't get me wrong, I have children and maybe one day even grandchildren, and I'd like the air to be clean too. The problem is if you lose your house, if you're unable to feed your children, if you're one of the people that is one paycheck away from insolvency, you don't give a damn about clean air right now. You you worry about feeding your family, and I think that that's the right priority. So if I was advising the government, I'd say let's get to methods to increase people's disposable income and put some money in their pocket because – A great majority of the population right now is far more worried about their house than they are about pipelines and clean air. They are. And as people will be pushed, some people will be pushed into poverty. You said doctors and professors complaining about what's to come economically, but you're right. It's the people who are already the most financially vulnerable who are in this very precarious position already with grocery bills that they can't afford. And now going into the new year and hearing about recession, it's frightening for them. So what do individuals, what, do, what power do they have right now? What can they do? Very little, unfortunately. Unfortunately, People have very little power. It's not election time, so there's nothing you can do about voting anybody in or out of office. The only thing that I would tell a great sector of the population to do is be thrifty and save and look at your consumption. I mean, the one thing you can control is how much money you spend. And I'm not talking about your rent and I'm not talking about food and things like that. But I'm talking about conspicuous consumption. People have to really be careful right now and ask themselves if that new car or that vacation or new clothes, or all of those things that people consider a luxury. And listen, I want everybody to enjoy those things and enjoy their life. But for some people, and more people than I think the government's willing to admit, right now what they have to do is make sure that they're saving every penny, every penny right now, while insolvency isn't as far away as people would like. And I know that that sounds like advice your grandfather gave you. But you know what? It's not terrible advice. Save in bad times, spend in good times. That model's pretty much worked since people walked on the planet. It's good advice. Thanks for that, Eric. Take care. Hey there, welcome back to the show. I'm Raji Sohal, in for Mike Smith. Well, when Premier David Eby took office, he set the expectation pretty high, I think you could say, for what his government was going to do to improve housing and healthcare in BC. Within two weeks of becoming Premier, Eby announced that $1.2 billion in funding. Now that was done to to speed up housing developments, to improve access to health care. But his critics are questioning the viability of these commitments. Are they going to achieve what the provincial government says that they will? My guest is Adam Olson. He's the Green Party MLA for Sanish North and the Islands. Hi, Adam. Hey, good morning, Roger. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. So, Adam, as we approach the very end of the year, what are you thinking about this Housing Supply Act and, and whether or not it's going to streamline developments? 
well, I mean, I think um, all the act does uh, right now, uh, as it passed at the end of the uh, fall session, is it gives government the opportunity to uh, basically a stick, essentially. It's how they decide to use the stick is and how, you know, Minister, new Minister of Housing, Ravi Callan, decides to use it, the the new tools that uh, government gave itself uh, is still yet to be seen. I think how it is regulated, which is the next step of this, you know, the, the regulations that government uh, creates over the next uh, few months will really determine where uh, they kind of apply the pressure and say they, the provincial government, the CPCNDP government applies pressure, which municipalities uh, they decide to, uh, to test their new, the, these new, um, these new tools on. And so really, I mean, it, it doesn't create, uh, any new housing uh, yet, uh, but it, it does certainly say, you know, for uh, the provincial government to be able to go to municipalities and say, essentially, uh, what is your, uh, what, what does your housing needs assessment say and how are you achieving those outcomes? Um, and if you're not, then uh, we're going to be having a conversation essentially about how you're going to be doing that. Okay. It's clear that you don't think that they can wholesale change the housing reality in our province, but how optimistic are you that they can affect change in the right direction? Uh, Well, I mean, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, the David Eby government is almost uh, solely focused on increasing supply. And one of the things that Sonia personal, my colleague, uh, BC Green Caucus and I have been talking about is that, you know, basically all housing supply is not uh, created equally. Uh, uh, we have public money basically going in and being invested in market housing, essentially building um, housing that is then going to be uh, put into the housing market, whether it be um, uh, the rental or, or for sale. And, and what that does is it just basically put, does put more housing stock in, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, affordable housing or attainable for people. And that's a, a problem that we've been seeing is that BC housing um, development projects that have been approved and built under the housing hub uh, are not coming back as necessarily affordable housing. They're, they're market housing. And so if the goal is just to create more housing units and be able to celebrate housing units being created, then you know perhaps the government is on a track to be able to do that. If the goal is to create more solid, uh, stable, secure housing for people in British Columbia, then what Sonia and I have been talking about is that we need to be building housing for the most vulnerable with public money. We build nonprofit housing, co-op housing, uh, rent-to-own type, uh, you know, housing models, uh, so that people can get into a in, into a home, a uh, place to call home, a place that can provide them the security that they need at a at a rate that's affordable for them, uh, so that then they can kind of build the rest of their lives around that. Uh, and unfortunately, that's not the direction that this government has gone. Despite Premier Eby saying last fall to me when I asked him the question, "Is housing a human right?" He absolutely agreed and believes that housing is a human right, but yet uh, his government and this government has yet to treat it that way. Okay, so you would like to see a revised economic approach where instead the housing uh, effort was focused more on the most vulnerable. But what about the middle class? Well, I think the public money that's being invested um, the, so, so there's a there's a difference here. I think Raji, that I, the distinction that I'd like to make is that we're extending. Sure billions of dollars of public money into housing. And I, I don't think, and Sonia and I have have uh, basically ar- argued that we don't ne- think that uh, the majority of that public money should be spent um, putting it into the um, housing market, which then you know doesn't return 
uh, affordable housing units. It, it returns housing units. And so uh, while the, you know, I, I think what we're looking for is a more balanced approach. And uh, yes, the middle class needs housing. There's no question about it. And we're going to, you know, I think that the housing market uh, develops and builds uh, housing for, for middle class. And I think that making sure that there's ample space for those kind of housing units to be built is important. But where public money is being invested, where your and my tax dollars are being invested, I think that there should be an expectation that money is being put towards uh, housing the most vulnerable, that the housing, uh, that the housing market, the private development, has never done a good job of, of building housing for, for the most vulnerable people in our society um, because they build units, housing units, and then sell them for what the market uh, decides is the, is the value of that unit. And so I think that's the point that Sonia and I are making. Adam, would you like to see it, would you like to make it harder for the extreme wealthy from snatching up so much property? Well, um, and I'm not I talking think, uh, about, I'm not talking about foreign buyers. I am talking about people here with a lot of money who during right. the pandemic have been buying acres and acres of farmland in uh, the Fraser Valley who have been buying up massive condo development buildings. Do we need to make it harder for the extreme wealthy to buy, pro- buy property in BC? Um, uh, I think this an interesting question. I haven't had a chance to really think too, too much about this, but what I would say is that when we take a look at the land that they're purchasing, my hope is is that we are getting out of it what we expect to get out of it. And and what I'd say is if they're buying agricultural land, my hope is that the local and provincial governments are working with those landowners to ensure that they are getting the highest level of, of food production uh, to to increase uh, food resiliency and, and food security in our communities. Um, you know, I, it, I'm going to just stay on the, the agricultural land here for an example you know, for a minute here, because I think, you know, the agricultural land is, is land that's kind of valued less than an, um, uh, urban kind of, uh, downtown land. Um, and, uh, you know, people can buy a lot of it and build rural estates and, you know, put up big fences and, and you know, keep people away and, and have, you know, sprawling rural estates. What my hope is, and it, you know, I think that what we've always been trying to advocate for with uh, with the provincial government, going back to when I was in local government for, you know, I was a municipal councillor in a community that has a lot of agricultural land. What we're not seeing are proactive measures that encourage those landowners to produce the most food that they can on that for their local community. And I think that, you know, in, in that, if you if you take it from that perspective and say it doesn't really matter who is owning the land, but are we getting out of the land what we expect to as community development and community uh, planners uh, are expecting to get food production off of agricultural land? Let's focus our policies on that uh, rather than demonizing a landowner and, and, and kind of turning them into what would be in the end kind of an enemy of government. You would say, how does that landowner uh, contribute to the community that they have bought their land in? Sure, that sounds all very fair, altruistic, and maybe optimistic. <laughs> as some well, of these, well, no, I mean, I think I think government has those tools, though. And we started this conversation by saying, you know, government is has uh, through the uh, the housing bills and this last fall created tools for themselves to achieve outcomes that it desires. Um, what we haven't seen are is government creating tools, for example, with agricultural land that says, look, how do we create the the conditions? for the most amount of food that we can to be produced. Why are we still relying on 
on food producing land in Southern California that is, you know, being grown on land that has no water. Why are we, why are we relying on those supply chains when we know that supply chains are weak and when we can be putting in place very productive policies that encourage landowners who own that agricultural land to get the best out of it and for people to be able to buy local food. I, I don't think that it's altruistic. I think that this is exactly what the provincial government did with housing, and there's no reason why it couldn't do it with uh, with food, food production, and it's no reason why those landowners could also not contribute to uh, the housing needs of a community or, you know, um, others, recreation needs. You know, there's, there's a variety of different needs that communities have, and, and I think that all of the people that live in those communities uh, are assets and could be seen as assets to con- contributing to the communities. It's just how government relates to them. And, and um, you know, I think, you know, to go a little bit further with the question that you asked, we passed the speculation and vacancy tax. And this was to, uh, I think, in some, to some extent, deal with people who could afford to buy more than one home and leave it empty. And we said, you know, the provincial government said, look, uh, those empty homes are needed for homes for people. So they put a tax in, and what we've seen over the last number of years is a large number of those empty units are now being rented or they were sold to someone who can live in them. And I think uh, the government, you know, continues to put out statistics about how successful that measure has been. It was controversial, but it had an outcome that was desired. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Adam. Yeah, thank you for your time this morning. um, Season's greetings and the best of 2023 to uh, all your listeners. Same to you. Welcome back to the show. I'm Raji Sohal in for Mike Smith today. Scientists have made a discovery about what dinosaurs ate based upon finding a perfectly preserved foot inside the stomach of a fossilized dinosaur. This story blows my mind. <laughs> it's not just any foot they found. It was the foot of a mammal. Joining us now is one of the scientists who helped uncover this rare evidence. Dr. Alexander Dechecki joins me now. He's a professor of biology at Mount Mary University. Hi, Alexander. Hi, how are you? I'm great. And I had to read this story so many times just to try and garner as much info as possible about how wild this really is. Okay, there's so many things I want to know about this story. But first off, Alexander, what exactly was uncovered? So uh, quite a, a while ago, uh, when I actually was a grad student at McGill University, uh, my supervisor and I uh, had gone over to Beijing to look at some of these small feathered dinosaurs. And when we were looking at one specimen of a small creature called Microraptor, uh, if any of your listeners have heard about it, it's also called the four-winged dinosaur because it's got long feathers on its arms and its legs. So I was looking at a small specimen of this with my, with my supervisor at the time, uh, Dr. Hans Larsen of McGill. And most people look at the arms, look at the head, the feet. Um, and in the middle, there was a, a section which had sort of the rib cage and the chest and the stomach area. And no one really paid attention because it was just, it was rib bones. And we're sitting there and Hans and I are looking and suddenly we're like, wait, there's something in that area. Wow. And we looked more and more and we noticed that it was a foot. But this was tiny. And yes, it's, it's tiny. I mean, uh, we're talking, you know, about small mouse size. So a, a relatively small uh, uh, mammal. And the whole animal itself, this, this specimen isn't that much longer than a house cat. 
but it had a long, skinny tail, so probably, probably weighed very, very little. Probably didn't weigh much more than a robin, um, maybe a blue jay. But How did you was, guys know uh, to look for it, though? Uh, well, we were looking over that whole specimen because I was doing work uh, at the time on that specimen, and so we decided to look at everything, not just what everyone's sort of focused on usually. And then it just, it just once you saw it, it's sort of like, um, you know those like Where's Waldo type puzzles? Yeah. When you see it, it <laughs> just jumps out. As soon as we saw it, I think Hans was the first person to point out, hey, what's that? And as soon as we, we turned our eyes and, and sort of your brain switches over, it just popped out. And we're like, how? And we, we were both like, someone else must have seen this. And so we talked to our colleagues in, in uh, China, and they're like, what? We showed them, like, oh, my goodness. And no one... No one one there had had seen it before either. Yeah. And just for our listeners, you can, I'm looking at the image now, uh, just it's this close up of a tiny mammal foot about a centimeter long among the ribs of a micro raptor fossil on CNN. Um, And yeah, I guess it's like you're saying, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You focus on it, right? Yeah. And so the funny thing is if uh, in the actual paper, we have a picture showing the whole specimen. And if you look at the whole specimen, it's, it's laid out there and there's, good legs and tail and head. And there's a little tiny chunk, um, only a few centimeters long by a couple centimeters tall off to the side. And that's where the ribs were. And again, people just didn't look at it because they're like, oh, it's just ribs. And that it was just as soon as you look, you're like, oh. And then it's obvious that something is there. And then it, we started looking into more of what the foot looked like because what I could tell is about the animal it ate. And that's where the paper really grew out of. Just amazing. And then, Alexander, how significant is this discovery to other researchers and scientists? Like, what does this mean in the, in the greater scheme of things? Well, whenever you find direct evidence of a behavior from uh, an animal that's been extinct around 120 million years, that's always really exciting. Um, but one of the things I find uh, important about this is other specimens of, of this creature have been found with some birds in them and some fish. And now we have a mammal and there's been a lizard. And so this really suggests that these guys were really generalist hunters. I tend to, to say that they're pretty much like my cat that I have, who's actually sitting on my computer right now, um, <laughs> that they would be sort of, if you had one as a pet, because they were feathered, and actually these beautiful iridescent black feathers, it'd be kind of a sweet pet to have. But if it got outside, it would wreck the birds at your feeder. It would go after any fish in your pond and it would chase any small animals that were running around about it. And, it helps, I think, reinforce the idea that these were living creatures and behaving very much like we see similar-sized predatory animals today, like cats or foxes. And they weren't sort of – I mean, we've all seen pictures of T-Rex fighting Triceratops, right? Or Velociraptor hunting uh, uh, another animal called Protoceratops. And we sort of get this mindset of yeah. this hunted only that. Totally. Said, no, they were just – living creatures and they would eat whatever they could catch. Yes, that they were living creatures and they would eat whatever they caught. That is so, it um, it just makes the existence of dinosaurs that much more real. Yeah, I mean, it's, it was, it's a fun project to work on and it brought together, I mean, I'm now working in the States, but I, I was, I'm, I'm Canadian and I was originally at Montreal when we found this. Sure. But it's brought people together on there who are at McGill, at the University of Alberta, we have so cool. uh, one, one of the uh, colleagues is in uh, Queen, uh, Queen Mary University in London. We'll and have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Alexander. Thank you for that. It was really fascinating.
Aji Sohal here in for Mike Smith. Looking back in reflection on the last year, 2022 was a divisive year in Canadian politics. The nation's capital was at a standstill with the trucker convoy. Remember that? Some people felt abandoned by the federal government during the pandemic, while others felt saved by the government, given those CERB payments that maybe kept them from losing the place that they were renting or living in. And according to an end-of-the-year poll conducted by Ipsos, 49% of Canadians want Ottawa to hold a federal election this coming year, with 54% of participants saying that they want Justin Trudeau to give up his role as Prime Minister. For more, I'm joined by Hamish Telford, a professor of poli-sci at University of Fraser Valley. Hi, Hamish. Good morning, Raji. Thanks for joining us. It's always good to talk to you. So how surprising are these poll results to you? Not terribly surprising. Um, We know that the Liberals only have about a third support of of the electorate Um, in the last two elections. That's where they sit in public opinion polling today. So two-thirds of the electorate um, is opposed to the government. And uh, evidently, some of those people are getting antsy for an election because they'd like to see the back of Justin Trudeau. And what about confidence in what the government did to get us through the pandemic as we go into this recession they say we're going to hit? I think uh, enthusiasm for the government is waning. I think people were very grateful for the government's response, uh, particularly those people who needed the economic support, uh, both individuals and businesses. Um, And the government actually did pretty well to to sort of, as you mentioned, the CERB payments, which they sort of pulled off within about two weeks. That's an extraordinary response from a government. Um, But as time has marched on, um, that is sort of receding into the background. People are forgetting about that and they're focused on current problems. Uh, The cost of of living, um, interest rates now, people renewing their mortgages, a a looming recession, people worried about losing their jobs, even though the unemployment rate is quite good now. People are worried about what's coming next year. So, So I think there's a lot of unease now in the electorate. Yeah, you mentioned there just that people do tend to have a short memory when it comes to what they appreciated and once they see that thing slipping away. And as we look forward to the new year, 2023, I I would think that people would be so allergic to the word election, given all the the changes that we have been through in the last year, the year before, that they would want to stay away. But do people feel so dissatisfied that they'd be willing to go to the polls again? I think some people do. Um, Of course, Dustin Trudeau called an early election um, and people were not happy with him calling an early election. Now people want him to call it. Although it's interesting looking, if you delve into the polling numbers a little bit more deeply, uh, the enthusiasm for an election is lowest in Ontario and Quebec, which both had provincial elections this year. They're, They're sort of electioned out and don't want to see another one. Um, there is an election looming in Alberta in, in May, but we know that support for Justin Trudeau is very, very low on the prairies. And and so I rather suspect people there would like an, a federal election, as I say, to see the back of Justin Trudeau. The other thing I found interesting in the polling information um, was that enthusiasm for an election is highest amongst young people, people ages 18 to 34. And I don't think that's necessarily enthusiasm for the opportunity to vote for the first time, but just indicative <laughs> of how difficult um, the current economic situation is, and it's particularly impacting young people. 
And so they are perhaps looking for a, a change of government and a government that might afford them a, a little bit more help dealing with these difficult economic circumstances. And yes, they might be very vulnerable if they're in a position where they've lost their job next year in the in the first quarter. And now Justin Trudeau, was uh, he's been criticized for not being fully transparent about why we have this engineered recession coming up. And I had a guest on the show earlier, an economist who said... Uh, it's because the CERB payments were too big. But at the time that the CERB payments came through, I remember the stories, and we all do, of the many people whom it helped. It helped them keep in their apartment that they were renting. It helped them stay off the streets in some cases. Obviously, not everybody uh, went through that. But uh, for a certain part of our population, it was good. Absolutely. And, you know, it, hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? Um, and it's, it's pretty clear, I think, that the government overdid it in terms of, of its supports. Um, but we have to remember the counterfactual. What is the counter argument here? What if they had not done enough or had done nothing? Um, and, and most economists would have said under those circumstances, the economic situation would have been much, much worse. We would have, instead of having the pandemic recession, we could have gone into a, a depression. Um, and, and that would have been much worse than what we're enduring now. But the inflation problems and the other economic problems that we're experiencing are not solely related to uh, the overpayments of CERB or, or government debt. There are other factors, global factors. The war in Ukraine pr- uh, pushed up the price of oil and gas, at least earlier in the year. That attributed to a lot of inflation. Supply chain issues, um, which everything got backed up during the pandemic. Um, and governments really have very little control over these things. They just take time to work themselves out. Um, and of course, at the same time, the bank has been raising interest rates, the central bank, um, to try and cool things off. And they're trying to do it in such a way as not to precipitate uh, a recession, but it's a very fine line. And we'll see if they've crossed over it or not in the coming months. Let's talk about Trudeau's approval rating for a second. The poll showed that it remains at 45% among Canadians that were polled. This was ahead of Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. He got a 41% approval rating. What do you make of that number? Did you think that was high, low? Um, I think for the Conservatives, it's indicative of a, of a problem. Pierre Polyev's approval ratings are not really any better than the last couple of leaders. It doesn't. Uh, conservatives really love Pierre Polyev, but he doesn't seem to be yet expanding um, the, the base of, of the party. Um, and for Justin Trudeau to be holding up 45% after being in government now for eight years... Um, is really not uh, not too bad on on his part. Um, so, if anyone wants an election, it would probably be him. But he says we're not going to have one, and I and I don't think we will. At least not caused by him. And in terms of Trudeau, um, as we see his popularity wane, if people could, if his supporters could edit him, how do you think they would? What would they change about his leadership style? <sighs> I think it's time for Justin Trudeau really to become the elder statesman of Canadian politics. He's older than Pierre Polyev. He's older than Jagmeet Singh. Uh, he's not as old as, as uh, Elizabeth May, who's now back in the game. But I think uh, rather than being the young, fresh kid who took on Stephen Harper and won back in 2015, he has to become the elder statesman. Um, when he testified uh, to the judge uh, in the hearing about the truckers' convoy, he was on the stand for six hours and really performed very well. Um, he sounded authoritative, knowledgeable. He didn't hum and haw 
And I think that the Canadians want to see more of that Justin Trudeau, that the person in charge, the person who is handling the big problems, uh, not not the drama teacher on stage who's humming and hawing. Yeah, that's interesting. He did show a different leadership style during the whole trucker convoy thing. And uh, yeah, some folks wanted to see more of that. Others just want to see him gone. Others just seem like they've had enough of him. And so what is the what is 2023 hold for us in terms of the big political leaders in Canada? I think it's going to be a status quo year with one caveat. Um, in February, we are supposed to get the report from the judge, uh, Judge Rouleau, uh, who was looking into the, the Emergencies Act and whether or not the government was justified in invoking it. If he concludes that the government was and the prime minister was not justified in the use of the Emergencies Act to deal with the truckers' convoy and the border blockades, etc., Personally, I think that, that uh, if it's a really con- condemning report, I think Justin Trudeau would have to resign. And if he doesn't, I think Parliament would be within its rights to have a vote of non-confidence. I suspect the government has done enough to survive that report. And if they do survive it, then I'm not anticipating any great changes in leadership or an election in 2023. And what do you make of how divisive Canadians have become politically in the last year? You know, a lot of Canadians prided themselves for so long on, I hate to say it, but on not being the states. But we have seen in the last year that we are, people even self-describe sometimes now as being on the left or right in a way that we never tended to culturally in Canada. Yes, it's part of a global trend, I think. Um, and and it's, it, there's a number of factors uh, related to it. Um, and, and I think one of the big factors sort of behind the scenes now is the way in which parties have to raise money. Um, they, they can no longer go to donors and get big donations from corporations or unions or wealthy individuals. They are constantly fundraising and they are literally sending out emails to all of their supporters and members asking for five or ten dollars. And how do you get people to take ten dollars out of their wallet and give it to you? You have to sort of gin them up. Uh, continually, perpetually. And I think that's part of the problem. Then we've got a media environment now as well, which includes social media, which is all about getting clicks. How do you get people to click on a link? Well, you have to make it sound interesting and exciting. And again, you have to gin up the audience. So I think all of these things are compounding um, the the, the polarization that we're seeing, uh, not only in Canadian politics, but American politics and, and in other countries as well. All right, Hamish, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us. It's always a treat. You're welcome.